Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is The Remnant. Uh, taking a quick break from the book tour stuff to um, uh, bring you another podcast, because I don't want to break stride. And this week's episode is brought to you by Conversations with Bill Crystal, which I think is one of the uh, best egghead fi- uh, pieces of egghead fare out there on the interwebs today. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. Uh, today we have, as a guest, a friend of mine, um, a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, and uh, literally one of the uh, sharpest guys I know when it comes to a vast array of things. And I actually wanted to have him on the show to talk about North Korea a while back, but conversations with Bill Crystal had him on for, I don't know, about an hour and a half, and it was fascinating. And I highly, as, as great as I think this podcast um, is going to be, I highly recommend if you're interested in the topic of North Korea, um, watching that as well. Uh, you can just Google uh, Conversations with Crystal and it'll come up. Um, type in Eberstadt. Um, I actually was on Conversations with Crystal uh, just like a week ago um, talking about the book. <laughs> and um, I thought that went pretty well as well. And um, so we're going to get to him in just a second. And then at the end, we'll figure out some other major, minor, uh, irrelevant announcements to include as well. Okay, so um, today we have my friend, my AEI colleague, a guy who's so sharp you get paper cuts just shaking his hand, uh, Nick Eberstadt. Nick, um, what is your title here? You're, uh... I'm the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy, which means I guess I can do anything, huh? I think that's right. And um, right. You, al- you also have some affiliation with some trade school in Cambridge, or you used to? I used to. Okay, yeah. So I first met Nick in the elevator in AEI about 21 years ago. He has no memory of this, where I was with a bunch of other research assistants, and Nick was in there, and he was looking uh, quite young. And I asked him which scholar he worked for, and all the other research assistants in the elevator punched me in the arm. (laughs) Um, So uh, I also know Nick because I used to work for a self-taught demographer named Ben Wattenberg. And whenever Ben was over his skis on something, he would go check with you about stuff. And that is your real training, right? You're a demographer. Well, no. But I mean, I can play one on podcasts. Um, um, So what actually is your degree in? In economics. Okay, it's economics. Good, but you've done a lot of demography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I you know, kind of trespassed. Okay, so on... I can play one on TV. On um, on the Bill Crystal podcast, uh, Conversations with Crystal thing, You the it was a great thing, which we'll talk more about later, but um, I always assumed that you were secretly, like, segunded to the... The CIA in some way, but it turns out you said you you've never had security clearance. I've never had security clearances, and um, I mean, it, it it may be that I couldn't get them if I tried. But right. uh, the reason I wouldn't want to have them is that I always had this kind of awful feeling in the back of my head that if I had a security clearance, I'd get to a point in an argument up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or you know Stanford or some other place where I'd be saying. If you knew what I know, you'd know that you're wrong. Right. right but I right. can't tell you why. <laughs> so I can I can show my homework on anything that I do, which is, I guess, the limit and the advantage of not having security clearances. So 
How do you, we're going to get to the meat of it, but how'd you get interested in North Korea in the first place? Well, like most things in what laughingly passes for my career, it was an accident. Uh, it was back in the Cold War. I'd gone from being a pretty hard leftist to an anti-communist, and I wanted to do a dissertation uh, comparing progress against poverty in a communist and non-communist country. So, you know, just take a look at the map. What's, what's a fair comparison? Uh, you kind of, by the process of elimination, you're kind of backed into the Korean Peninsula, where you've got this incredible but awful natural experiment going on. Right. So that's how I that's how I stumbled into it. Um, so I, let's just cut to the chase here. Um, there are a lot of people screaming that Donald Trump already deserves the Nobel Prize. Um, my my one concession to rank punditry on this is I just did a piece for this for National Review. I can't stand this because the the central argument they all make is that he's done more to deserve it than Barack Obama did when he got his. But we all said at the time he didn't deserve his. So that's a really low bar, right? So it, it's one of these ways in which a low bar becomes the necessary or sufficient bar. Um, why don't you just give your big picture sense of the case for skepticism, why uh, people should maybe put away the streamers and party hats? Sure. Uh because there is a logic to the North Korean system, whether we approve of that system or not, it's the reason that system is still here uh, going on almost 30 years uh, since East Germany and the Eastern European socialist states have uh, disappeared from the earth, uh, over 25 years since the Soviet Union has departed our company. Um, why is it that they last? Because they've got a control system at home that allows them to endure. They've got an ideology at home that allows them to endure. And part of that ideology is about unconditional absorption of the entire Korean race. And they need the nukes to do it. Okay. And so you think it's fanciful at best that they would ever willingly give up their nuclear program? Well, I'd put a tiny qualification in there. I mean, every so often, God's idiot lands in your lap. I mean, there is the existence proof of Mikhail S. Gorbachev, right. who blundered his way into destroying the entire Soviet system. You can't always count on someone pulling a Gorbachev for you. If they don't pull a Gorbachev, there is absolutely no reason they would want to follow through on all the happy nonsense we are hearing now, because it would be system destroying for them. Okay, so um, let's back up. How, how much of what we're seeing is actually new, right? So much of what we hear is that this is unprecedented, that we haven't seen these kinds of overtures before, but we've seen a lot of these before, haven't we? Sure. I mean, most of what we're seeing is a reprise of golden oldies from the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea from North Korea. Uh, there are some new riffs on old themes. I mean, for example, the, the latest Kim, Kim Jong-un, uh, walked south of the DMZ, uh, in a kind of like, um, what do you say, for optics that's new and different, uh, smiling and everything, and a little bit new and different. Uh, from a substantive standpoint, with the most recent joint agreement the two sides have signed, they've signed a lot of them and put them in the trash can already, but this latest one, which hasn't been trashed yet, they published this in 
the North Korean press, and they even pulled a Voldemort. They mentioned not only the name of the signatory from the South, President Moon Jae-in, but they even mentioned the Republic of Korea, uh, which is the republic they're more or less committed to eradicate. That's new. Um, But these are rather small uh, iterations off of the main theme. So you, you have to say there are new tricks being tried, but substantively, it's something that we've seen before. Yeah. So um, one of the arguments that you often hear, or at least I often hear, is that – so this is partly an analytical question, probably just a factual question mm. – that this – their their nuke test mountain has collapsed. Yep. Now they have no choice. Oh, my gosh, they don't have a nuclear program anymore. So they don't – they've lost their leverage. First of all, factually – what happened, or what do we think happened there? Is that true? And um, is the analytical argument correct in some way I'm not getting? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, where else but in North Korea do you ever hear the concept of a fatigued mountain syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> what a great place. Uh, okay. So I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a geologist and I'm not a nuclear physicist. And so my newspaper reading is that They've kind of like played with this mountain a little bit too roughly, too hard. Um, it means that some of the sites on the mountain can't be used anymore. I don't understand whether it means that the entire mountain can't be used anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly uh, the case that if they wanted to continue you know, setting off nukes, they got a lot of other mountains in North Korea. They got 13,000 holes in the ground. We don't know that are in, you know, what are in them and so forth. So they got, they got plenty of real estate where they can keep on testing if they want to. I think the more substantive point, though, is that in the annual address that the Supreme Leader gives uh, – Kim Jong-un this year declared that the time of testing nukes and testing long-range missiles was completed. They're satisfied that they've got stuff that works. And now they are moving into mass production of nukes and mass production of long-range missiles. What about miniature – sorry to interrupt, but what about miniaturization? Isn't that something they still need work on or no? He, he was implying no. He was, he was implying that they're satisfied with both, of, both the nuke part and the missile part of the program. This is what he says. We have to take him at his word, unfortunately, on this. But if this is what he says, then – Promising not to test or shoot off rockets for a while isn't like a super big giveaway. Right. He didn't say anything about stopping the mass production of nukes or uh, missiles. Right. So, again, I just want to clear out some underbrush here for for listeners who just – because some listeners are just going to be tuning into this to figure out what they need to know about all this stuff, right? right? So one of the – you know, in the rally that Donald Trump gave the other night – he kept saying denuclearization, denuclearization, denuke, denuke. Isn't this a beautiful thing, right? But the North Koreans have had a specific meaning for denuclearization that runs counter to what the plain meaning for a normal person would be, right? Well, it's a strange thing for an Orwellian society, but they have Orwellian language. Right. <laughs> so uh, so when they say independent, that doesn't mean independent. It means America can't help you, South Korea. And similarly, when they say denuclearization, that's only half a word. It's a denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, which as a concept that they deploy means 
South Korea can't have a nuclear umbrella from the United States because that's a nuclearization of the Korean peninsula. So we'll start South Korea by getting rid of your alliance and the American troops and the U.S. nuclear backup for that. And after that, if we want to continue with denuclearization, then it's really an arms control issue. Mm -hmm. Then if the United States is okay with getting down to total of 10 nukes, we're okay with that too. <laughs> so part of the argument you'll hear from people is, is, and they won't phrase it this way, but is that sort of Donald Trump's ignorance of this is an asset and his sort of condo salesman approach to these things is an asset in the sense that he's just not going to accept that definition of denuclearization, right? And, and he'll, he can sort of bull in the china shop his way through doing this. And there was this report, at least in Axios, that Donald Trump just kept saying, just get me in a room with this guy and I'll be able to work out a deal. Without getting into ad hominem stuff about Donald Trump, what do you think of the... It seems to me that this is one of these category error or fallacies that we have about politics, that two individuals can change the nature of a regime over a handshake and a good meal, right? I mean, could could Kim Jong-un offer that kind of deal and bring it back to his generals and his regime? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can see a sort of a Godfather-style deal uh, where Trump plays uh, Tom Hagen and says to Tessio, I can't get in the car with you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's one type of deal, I guess. Um, give, uh, give Trump his due. Um, I got to say this is the first point in my adult life where U.S. policy actually is converging to make the North Korean threat a smaller problem. And part of that is because I suppose the neutral word for it is because Trump is such an unconventional president. Um, he, up until now, he hasn't been suckered by the false lure of diplomacy as a solution to a problem that the North Koreans don't want to solve. Mm -hmm. The basic problem, I think, from the U.S. side is we look at diplomacy as diplomacy when the North Korean side looks at diplomacy as war by other means because it's a revisionist power. And revisionist right. powers always look at diplomacy as in a war by other means. Um, whether we're going to give everything away in the next couple of months is a question that remains to be answered. But for the first time in my life, you see the pieces coming together with the sanctions at the UN and the Treasury Department sort of hunting licenses for secondary financial sanctions and the unpredictability, we call it madman theory, for the president with uh, what the press calls bloody nose. I mean, all of these have come together to put more pressure on North Korean leadership than we've seen since the end of the Cold War. Now, it's possible for us to throw it all away. We had a wonderful opportunity under George W. Bush to squeeze North Korea with financial sanctions, and we threw it all away in something called the Banco Delta Asia episode. Um, so we seem to be pretty good at throwing things away. But if we don't, um, I think we have a lot of promise. So I remember I asked you once about this, and you gave me a very long, good, eye-opening answer that had much more to do with South Korea than I thought through. Because it seemed to me, 
I used to be enamored until you talked me out of it. I used to be enamored with this idea of basically having a policy where we just simply say to China, it's your country. You claim that you don't have the control over it that you have. Um, but we're basically going to Finlandize North Korea. And if they do anything, we're going to, to us or to our allies, we're going to consider it an act of aggression by you. So they're really your, the, the dog, that dog is in your yard. You put a leash on it or we're going to hold you accountable. And part of your argument was that this would not be, this could not fly with South Korea. Can you, and this is something that I think is worth exploring. So many people, including me, are fascinated with North Korea and I want to get back to North Korea. But the South Korean attitude towards North Korea is not something that a lot of Americans have really focused on. It's a strange attitude, right? So can you sort of tie this together? Sure. Well, I mean... You can imagine why it would be a strange, somewhat schizophrenic attitude because the Korean peninsula is in the middle of two civil wars that are still unsettled. The obvious civil war is between the state in the north and the state in the south, and they don't have a peace treaty. They have a ceasefire, which means to be continued uh, since 1953. But then there's also a civil war within the South between the so-called conservatives and the so-called progressives, which is a continuing struggle uh, more or less uh, between people who were enamored of the, uh, uh, of the communists uh, and people who worked with the as collaborators uh, with uh, occupation of various sorts. Um, and these things are still uh, these things are still very hot in the South. And you get people who lose their temper when they're arguing, and they'll talk about whether your grandfather was a uh, a bastard collaborator with the Japanese, or your grandfather was a bastard collaborator with the communists. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, this is still very much part of the memory plastic. Um, be that as it may, uh, although. Uh, Ethnic thinking is uh, somewhat antique, not totally, in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, Nationalism and racialism are still white hot in Northeast Asia. And everybody in both Koreas talks about the minjok, about the uh, nationality or the race of the Korean people. The South Korean constitution and the North Korean constitution both claim dominion over the minjok. And for the United States to make some sort of implicit deal with China about dominion over North Korea would be seen almost as like one slaveholder making a mm-hmm. you know, transaction with another slaveholder to take your brother's slaves away and keep them in captivity. Uh, the South Korean constitution, as I mentioned, uh, claims that all Koreans uh, have a right to be citizens of the ROK. And so this adds a additional human rights complication to this sort of an idea of, you know, having a U.S.-China condominium over the heads of the Koreans. Uh, As long as North Korea is the worst human uh, rights nightmare on the planet, uh, some sort of realpolitik deal like that would have terrible moral implications. Um, And Although the South Koreans dread the idea of having to accommodate and pay for the reconstruction of the North when we talk about it that way, Mm -hmm. they have a radically different, uh, uh, almost schizophrenic attitude when uh, people talk about 
depriving Korea of the opportunity to reunite. I mean, I can describe it. It may not right. make sense to everybody, but I can describe it. Yeah, yeah. And so I suppose I could have looked this up, but what is the the general consensus about where the polling is in South Korea, about whether or not they actually favor unification? It, it, um, it skews very much by uh, age group. So people who remember the Korean War are for reunification very strongly. People who are, let's say, in general working age groups are quite ambivalent about it. And the rising generation, uh, who are the North Koreans? Yeah. So it, it goes from um, uh, North Korea fearing to North Korea hating to North Korea nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, my guess is that if something big and real happened in the peninsula, all of that public opinion polling would be thrown out the window and mm-hmm. we'd have to relearn what people really think you right, know, deep right. down. This is the sort of stuff that Henry Kissinger was doing in the 1950s with his psyops operations in uh, Germany and Europe. He'd get the public opinion polling data, but the job was to figure out what people really thought when push came to shove. Right. And I don't think we have any information to tell us what people will really think when push comes to shove. Yeah. And so, but the the prog- the progressives, so to speak, in South Korea, my understanding is that they make the American sort of radical left seem f- sort of fairly tame antique pieces, right? I mean, there's a very strong, almost North Korean collaborationist mindset among some subset of the progressive crowd. I mean, there was that attack on our ambassador. There's this, there's, what's the one... What's the one South Korean party office in the north? Yeah, yeah, the, the AINDF, the Anti-Imperialist National Democratic Front. Yeah, the imaginary South Korean group that the north uh, represents up there, which is always urging for the overthrow of the South Korean government and unconditional unification on Kim Jong-un's terms. And so how many, so how many people in actually South Korea talk that way about North Korea? That are, I mean, is that if you did a talk show, could there be someone who would come on and, and take the pro unification on the north's terms position or is it is that well, it's, on the, a, it's a little the it's a little more problematic because there still is a pretty strict national security act uh, on the books there you could get in trouble for doing that uh-huh. if you were in a student dorm could you find people who would talk that way on campus on some campuses yes um, there are however i mean there are people who a much larger number of people in uh, South Korea who would look at Noam Chomsky treatises the way that people over here look at the New York Times. Right, right, right. So it's a it's a standard deviation or so further to the left, yeah. the uh, the Korean left than our guys. Okay, so more more brush clearing. What is it that you think China actually wants with the Korean Peninsula? And how does it actually think about the Koreans as the as a people? Well, so this is a huge headache for me, Jonah, because the Chinese government is almost a hundred percent opaque, right? You know, and if you try to, you know, I'm not real good with the chicken entrails, so I like to have you know texts and things. They, China has a defense treaty with North Korea. Are, we're almost sure there are secret protocols to it. Uh, for whatever reason, our intelligence community has never gotten the secret protocols. China is the lifeline economically for North Korea. Um, 
our guys have never been given any presentation by the Chinese side about how much money they're giving, what mechanisms, why. Even though we've been in six-party talks with China off and on, we started in 2003. I'd have to say this would be my interpretation because other sure. people could interpret very, very differently. Um, you know, China had this, uh, uh, what do they call it, unfortunate series of events in the 1930s with Japan, uh, and the pathway into northeast China was through the Korean Peninsula. That event, I think, is still very vivid in the memory of Chinese military and policymakers. Even if the North Korean regime is populated by people that despise Chinese leadership as it is, North Korean geography means that there is some strategic depth and a barrier in having uh, even this awful government uh, run the place. And so um, it appears to me that the Chinese government – and I'm just trying to make sense of what you can observe by mm -hmm. the behavior. It's not that they've said this. But it appears that they are acting as if they have a kind of a calculus where as long as North Korea is causing more trouble for the U.S. alliance than it is for China, and it causes a lot of trouble for China, then that's okay. Mm -hmm. That would be kind of a weird calculus. There's one other thing about the China-North Korea relationship that almost nobody ever talks about. I have this feeling that the Chinese leadership is a little bit afraid of North Korea. I mean, you can kind of see how this might be. You can imagine if, uh, let's say, you lived in an apartment next to Joey Gallo and he had nuclear <laughs> weapons. You, know, you, you might be a little scared of him. My impression is that the North Korean leadership hasn't been scared of anything coming out of China since the Cultural Revolution when the Red Guards were saying that they should uh, string up the fat Kims, mm -hmm. but that the Chinese side has been worried about the North Korean side consistently since then. Because of their sort of rogue unpredictability, all that kind of stuff. So that, that brings us to um, Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's... I know you don't think he's... Well, do you think he's crazy? Do you think he's more crazy than his father? Do you think he's crazy like a fox? Try to peg <coughs> where you see his rationality. Well, look, I mean, if, if they were run by... <coughs> Uh, if, you know, if, if they were run by Alcibiades, they'd have gone down a long time ago. Right. Um, so whatever his um, uh, defects, you can't really say that we've got a madness of King George sort of thing going uh -huh. on there. My interpretation is that his father, Kim Jong-il, was not only a monster – but was a very, very bad emperor. He ruined the economy. He ruined the party. He ruined the state. And maybe most importantly, even though he was in the uh, hereditary dynasty business, he didn't pick a successor until he had a stroke. And it was mm -hmm. impossible for him not to make a choice. So his son took over a really uh, forbidding uh, situation. And as within North Korean terms turned it around. They've had under Kim Jong-un uh, an economic revival of sorts. Uh, he has rebuilt the party sufficiently that they were able to have a party congress with something that they thought they could celebrate 
after 36 years, the last one was in uh, 1980, kind of a big gap, mm-hmm. he's rebuilt the state. And he's obviously uh, been super bang up good on nukes and missiles. Uh, they've done more nuke and missile tests under him than under his dad and granddad combined. Uh, so that's, I mean, from a North Korean standpoint or North Korean dictatorial standpoint, he gets a lot of good grades for that stuff. The part that we can't tell about is the quality of his judgment in the clinch. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that we might worry about just from what's available for us to look at. I mean, here, I'll give you one example. If you were a little dictatorship in Northeast Asia trying to technologize your way into a confrontation that you want to win with America, you know, when uh, when a guy called Eric Schmidt from Google comes for a week to your country, you might want to pay attention to him. Well, I'm wrong because... Uh, Kim Jong-un just had a super busy calendar that week and just couldn't see him at all. Too bad. <laughs> um, however, y- the name... Game of Thrones had just come out yeah, in North Korea, so he had something well, else to well, do. Actually, he did have something else to do. Um, <laughs> some of you may know the name Dennis Rodman. And uh, Dennis Rodman is the... Uh, uh, what do you say? The most bankrupt, most alcoholic uh, member of the uh, Chicago Bulls basketball team of the 1990s. And uh, Dennis Rodman would come over, and Kim Jong-un had nothing but a free calendar right. to go uh, play and party with, uh, with Dennis. So some people would, would say that that shows a certain problem with quality of judgment. But he's still in power, and it looks like he's going to entice uh, President Trump to meet with him. So who's to say his judgment is bad so far? Okay, let's just stop there for just a second, Nick, because I should do a, sort of a semi-full disclosure thing. One of the reasons why I wanted to have Nick on this podcast to talk about North Korea, and I wanted to do it a lot earlier, was that he did such a great job on this other series, which is both a video and a podcast series called Conversations with Bill Crystal. And as it happens, they're actually the advertisers this week, and I figured this is the perfect way to do both the segue and the pitch. If you guys didn't, if listeners didn't know, my friend Bill Crystal has a terrific series called, again, Conversations with Bill Crystal. It's on YouTube. It's also a podcast. You can get it on iTunes. You can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Bill's conversations include a wide range of really interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests, from Dick Cheney to David Axelrod. They've done more than 100, and it's an impressive list. So just to name a few, Clarence Thomas. Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, Jonah Goldberg. That's right, this guy. I'm pointing both of my thumbs at me. You can actually, I think that's still the latest one up there. So you can watch any and all of, of Bill's conversations on the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org, and subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new releases every other week. So if you like a podcast, if you like my podcast, and if you don't, why are you listening to this? You'll enjoy Conversations with Bill Crystal. Okay, so now I'm going to go a little weird on you. Mm-hmm. Um, as listeners know, I can't pass up an opportunity to do a book-related question. Yeah. Um, so part of my thesis in my book is that liberal democratic capitalism is unnatural and that we kind of stumbled into it. We have these institutions, this rhetoric of our civilization that's very fragile. Most, most states in the world today still are what uh, Douglas North would call natural states, where a loose 
where a coalition of elites have a vested interest in protecting the regime from innovation, from upstarts, from rival centers of power, and then they collect rents off of the population and off of the system. And for most of human history since the agricultural revolution, every state was a natural state in effect. Um, and he compares natural states to what we have in America, Western Europe, Japan, which he calls open access orders. Now, um, so part of my argument is that when you put humans into a novel environment, in effect, and you don't have the sort of civilizational restraints on human nature, certain patterns keep emerging. Sort of like if you dumped a jar of ants on a foreign soil, ants just start colonizing, doing things that ants do. So one of the things I find fascinating about North Korea is that it started out as a pretty straightforward Stalinist, Marxist, Leninist state. And by the 1980s, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know all this, but I'm just trying to explain it for the listeners yeah. where I'm coming from. By the 1980s, they start shedding all of the Marxism. They start shedding all that doctrinaire stuff. And they basically revert back to a model very recognizable from an alien from Mars who hadn't been here for 5,000 years, which is basically a divine right of kings, monarchical system uh, with a very weird, mystical, self-worship kind of understanding of themselves. They're a superior race. They're the superior people. Everyone outside their borders are the dirty, filthy foreigners. First of all, what do you think of that? And But second of all, in terms of this religion, essentially the secular religion, the Spartan weird religion that they've created in North Korea where, you know, I mean, I was reading that Kim Jong-un, apparently his body is so efficient he doesn't need a bathroom, but for some reason he had to bring one with him to South Korea. <laughs> um, plus, when I see him on TV, he doesn't look like he's got the most efficient body in the world. But the question I have is, how much do you think Kim himself and the true leaders of the regime to believe their own BS, believe this own weird sort of uh, new religion of themselves? Well, I... It's an impossible question for me to answer because I haven't, you know, gone up there uh, like Dennis Rodman, gotten drunk with him and his joy squads. But I, and you I, can't because you're actually you got a death threat against you. You can't. Really well, that. yeah, maybe. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're overrated. Uh, but um, my interpretation would be that. Uh, the North Korean system has survived in part because it discarded all of the Marxism that got uh, the Soviet system and the Eastern European socialist systems dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, systematically moved out of Stalin land. I mean, they kept all of Stalin's you know, control, terror, death stuff, and kind of innovated and improved it. But I, from the standpoint of ideology, they lost the universal claim, the workers of the world unite thing, and completely redirected to the kind of the racial hum in the blood tribal war cry thing, which, as you say, has worked for thousands and thousands of years. We've seen it elsewhere in civilizations and non-civilizations. So they got rid of Marx and Lenin from their uh, doctrine and their documents. They took down the statues of those dead white men. They put up the 
even more statues of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. They stop talking about communism. They talk about socialism. We've had other leaders in Europe who have talked about socialism. The term national socialism has already been dibsed. So let's say racial socialism. They're into racial socialism big time. And the pull of this seems to be pretty strong and even pretty strong for uh, people who aren't in un- under the dictatorship in the north now how much how much kim the 3rd believes this stuff is a critical question that i can't answer my impression from a completely different system if you look at our system which is about as different as mm-hmm. could be from the north korean system you know people who are in politics get encased in really strong bubbles in our system. Right. And uh, it's really hard to find anything but yes men and yes women around them who are telling them that you know, they're the best thing they've ever seen in the world. Well, imagine what that's like if you live in a system where you're the living God. Right. Uh, I, th- I think you could probably get used to that pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And we know from defectors – I mean I-, I remember talking to generals who would say they would, they would debrief defectors – and there was a remarkable amount of of what the Jews would call if only the czar knew sure. stuff, right? Sure. Like they, they didn't believe that Kim was bad, but yes. that the people working for him had betrayed him, right? Yes. And so throughout the society, we still have reason to – and given that a lot of these are defectors, presumably they are less loyal and less enraptured by the state than the people who stay, right? Um, so we know that ideologically or psychologically – that this stuff does have a pretty solid hold on a lot of people in North Korea, right? And they've also perfected this in a way that the Marxist-Leninist dictatorships didn't because the Marxist-Leninist dictatorships at least had this claim that they were classless you know, or they were heading towards a classless paradise in the future. The North Koreans don't go along with any of that nonsense. The North Koreans have got a specific mechanism that they've put in place for a couple of generations called Songbun, which is the um, specific designation of social class to people when they turn 16. And there are 50-plus different social classes there. I mean, you're on a really good path if you're in the social class that's the descendants of the revolutionary martyrs. I mean, you're you're made. Um, You're in a really bad way if you're in the class that's the descendants of the Christians or the descendants of the landlords and so forth and so on. And their ideology seems to work so uh, forcefully that even the people in the hated classes – and it was only basically people in the hated classes who died in the famine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that was a twofer, right? Even the people who defect uh, – who are in the uh, hated classes seem to be thinking, well, you know, if, uh, you know, if only, as you were yeah. saying, if only – well, that, that's but that sort of buttresses my point because notions of caste and hierarchy and aristocracy have been useful social mechanisms for regimes on every continent for ten thousand years. Amen. Right? And they reinvented it essentially. Amen. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that's why I think it's just sort of fascinating is that in the West we so de- I mean it's a problem with lots of countries we desperately want to think that every other country is full of Americans with different accents and. The worldview of the North – the average North Korean is probably closer to the worldview of uh, somebody from the Caucasus 
500 years ago or something, right? I mean, I, I, I was born into a class because my ancestors were this. There's a divine ruler that was born, you know, on a mountaintop. And that's the worldview that, that is sort of inculcated. Now, I'm going to flip my entire point around now. Um, I was watching an interview with some North Korean defectors. It's a website called Big Asia, Boss Asia, something like that. Uh, Michael Brendan Doherty pointed to it. And they were arguing that North Korea is not nearly as closed as it once was. True. And that people are getting a much better sense that South Korea isn't poor, that it isn't backward. They're getting news that a lot of what the regime has been telling them is no is not true. Do you have any sense of where that where sure. the truth on all that is? Sure. Well, um, to begin with, with the unhappy news, I'm not clear that any of our radio free Asia or Voice of America broadcasts ever get through to anybody in North Korea. Maybe they do. Maybe by accident. Who knows? Uh, what seems to have made an impression and what there seems to be a big demand for is on the one hand news coming over from China and on the other – TV and other sorts of shows, K-pop DVDs, K-pop, sitcoms, mm-hmm. South Korean, um, what I believe the regime would call ideological and cultural poison. Mm. They, there seems Some of us here would call it to that. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> in, a, that. Uh, in any case, there seems to be a, fair, uh, a fairly evident uh, internal demand for this to the extent that the authorities – uh, punish people very strictly for it uh, when they choose to. If you're in a high enough social class, it doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. if you're in the wrong social class, God help you. Uh, so that seems to be changing the world. The place certainly is vastly more open than it was a generation ago. But the world's a moving target. So compared to all of the other countries in the world today, uh, North Korea is still the most totalitarian and still the most closed. I mean, I would say that the – although you could make the case that North Korea is markedly more open today than 35 years ago compared to contemporary uh, – well, it makes Iran today look like an experiment in natural law and mm-hmm. you know, consent of the governed. So it is no less different from the – you know, from the – mass of other states today than it was back then. It's just been a moving target. But, you know, before you were talking about Gorbachev and, you know, looking at what... So what if Kim Jong-un doesn't want Glasnost or Perestroika, but he's having Glasnost or Perestroika forced upon him because of the inroads of cell phones and images from South Korea and from China? And, you know, the... um, Remember that North Korean soldier that was captured. Yeah, yeah, there's he was, a guy with the tapeworm. Yeah, he was full of he was full of worms. Yeah. Right now, now my understanding is that the the soldiers are well fed. So if he's Compared, full comparatively, yeah. right? So if he's full of worms, yeah. Doesn't this maybe speak to the the fragility of the regime mm-hmm. that we can't necessarily appreciate from the outside? So we'll. I mean. I didn't think the regime was going to last out the 90s. So that's truth in advertising. So mm-hmm. you may want to like, turn off the podcast at this point. <laughs> but looking back on, you know, how did I, you know, how did I get that wrong? Uh, if, you, if you look at the collapse of different sorts of closed societies, they look stable until they don't. Mm-hmm. And it's really, I think, only after we get a hold of the archives uh, that we get to see how close they were to the edge as things are going along. 
uh, Kim III has made a fundamentally different strategic calculation from Kim II. Kim II, who was uh, running most of the levers of power before Pops died uh, while the collapse of the Soviet Union was going on, came to the conclusion that any sort of reforms, uh, cultural and ideological poisoning, any of that stuff was going to be deadly to the system. And he fought totally against that. His son is of the impression, or by revealed preference, behavior seems to be of the impression that North Korea can actually take a lot more of that poison than his dad thought. And thus they have experimentation in still illegal but prevalent local market systems, uh, a lot more uh, local level enterprise and stuff like that. Yes, it's corrupt. Yes, it's all illegal. Most importantly, He's feeding the nuke and missile programs by the bite that the state takes out of the profits from its, uh, you know, from its limited consumer sector. So he's trying to make this nascent consumer sector work for the military goals. That he, they call this parallel development, Pyongyang. And many of our observers seem to think this means that they're in competition with each other. They're mm-hmm. not. It's a symbiosis. Right. Uh, now, it may turn out that daddy was right and all of this poison really is deadly. Mm-hmm. But for the time being, it's worked for the boy. Okay, I know you have to get out of here, so I want to do a couple just more straightforward uh, of the moment questions. What is the fundamental problem? Let's take, let's 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 assume that Kim Jong Un understands that nuking Los Angeles mm-hmm. would bring out the Jacksonians mm-hmm. in this country, the likes of which no one has ever yeah. seen, and the place would be glowing for the next thousand years. About. 24 hours later, right? So we know, let's assume that he knows it's not really in his interest to nuke us. What are the main problems with them having a functional nuclear arsenal capability? I would be surprised if the idea ever was to hit San Diego or San Francisco or even Washington. My guess would be that the purpose of the nuclear option is to be able to have a face-off with the U.S. in the Korean Peninsula and to arrange a crisis in which Uncle Sam would blink and back down. Because at the moment that Uncle Sam, if and when, blinked and backed down, the U.S. alliance would lose all its credibility. People in South Korea might reasonably say, you're just you know, bullet catchers, get out of here. And the North Korean side would be a giant step closer to its objective of unconditional reunification. Now, admittedly, if you look at North Korea today, you look at South Korea today, and you thought these are two cats in a bag, let's tie up the bag, let's see who's going to get out of the bag, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure that we'd all think that it's going to be North Korea. Right. But the North Korean leadership seems to be absolutely convinced they are the cat that would get out of the bag because they're convinced the people in the South are corrupt and dissolute and cowardly and have no will to fight. Mm-hmm. And so, how to put? Well, so uh, let's do a simple question: What do you think happens next? <laughs> well, um, or play it out two or three steps. Yeah, okay, so play it out a couple of steps. We have a um, we have a chokehold on 
North Korea at the moment that the North Korean state desperately needs to break, and the chokehold is the international sanctions campaign. Sanctions have a miserable record of success, but North Korea is an exceptionally distorted and dependent economy. It's a poster child for a sanction campaign. Um, the North Korean side needs to peel South Korea off from the sanctions campaign to open up breathing space, and if they peel South Korea off, then China has a good excuse for peeling off as well, and then the then putting San Francisco in their sights becomes a lot quicker a proposition. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the North Korean, I think, my interpretation. That's the North Korean objective there, although there are other sorts of freebies that would come with that. So the South Korean government, which is a progressive government, is sort of caught in its thinking between the U.S. and North Korea and wishes to take the improbable role of a balancer between the government that's protecting them from destruction and the government that's trying to destroy them. They want to be the mediator there. Um, because of the fear of unpredictability of Donald J. Trump, uh, the South Korean side has been actually much closer in coordination with the U.S. than previous Sunshine governments have been. We'll see how that lasts if and when there is a summit between the North and the U.S. Um, so what do you put so, – just to back up to the previous yeah. question for a second. It seems to me that part of the ability to get out of the – sanctions regime or the, the the flexibility that they get from having a nuclear power. It, 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 the national security threat for the United States is we know it's essentially, by by Western standards, a criminal regime in the sense right. that they counterfeit, they yep. make drugs, sex, yep. tra you know, human trafficking, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So even if they think it's not in their interest for them to nuke one of our cities, if Iran or some mm -hmm. other country says, hey, you know, we've got – $5 billion, $10 mm -hmm. billion dollars for you, can you give us a suitcase bomb? Or right. even Al-Qaeda, right? Right. right? It seems to be not obvious that they would have any moral you know, reluctance to, to, to sell that stuff, right? We've never seen an example yet where they've said, no, we're not going to sell that. Yeah, who do you think we are? <laughs> um, and so that, to me, I mean, that seems to me has always been a more plausible argument is that they would feel the ability to be utterly defiant of international norms if they had the nukes because then they could do more mischief around the world and say, hey, look, you know, you can't stop us. You know, what are you going to do? But what do you think the odds are that Donald Trump gets in a room? I saw him in this press conference this week saying that he's now he's really tempted to have it on the north-south border, right, in the DMZ because, as he put it, if something wonderful happens, what a great place to have it, right? And if that's his mindset, that he really is thinking about the location for the benefit of the celebration of winning, that's not a great mindset to go in to a negotiation with, with, with the North Koreans. So where do you put the odds that we get a deal that sounds good, much like we did with previous administrations, but that actually does exactly what North Korea is looking for? Well, uh, certainly that's what the North Korean side is going to want. I mean, we need to have uh, adult preparation and adult leadership to avoid that on the U.S. side. The U.S. side also needs to understand that if this uh, 
event is going to be held at Panmunjom. This has a um, history in North Korean propaganda. From the North Korean standpoint, Panmunjom is where they signed the U.S. surrender in 1953. <laughs> so Trump is coming back to resurrender there uh-huh. if, if we end up uh, holding some sort of event at that particular place. If we have... So uh, in the Korean mindset, yeah. we are... North Korean, yeah. In the North Korean mindset, to, you, to borrow a pejorative from The Simpsons, Americans are a bunch of hot dog eating surrender monkeys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that they beat with us. long noses. With long noses, right? I mean, there's another thing that people don't appreciate how much really virulent anti-American propaganda is still being forced into the North Korean people. And absolutely racialist. Um, this whole racial socialism thing is strangely enough racialist. You don't see such racial propaganda anywhere in the world today. The last, I mean, you haven't seen stuff like this really since Julius Streicher was hanged. <laughs> um, so, all right, so anyway, I interrupted you. Uh, the perils of signing this on the... Yeah, so you, I really think it would not... Obviously, going to Pyongyang is a uh, is a uh, North Korean propaganda spectacular, but uh, Panmunjom has its own place in North Korean history and propaganda ideology. Um, one would think it would be better to go to some neutral spot, not in the Korean peninsula. Uh, If Switzerland is a place that Kim Jong-un has fond memories, maybe they'll go back to some ski slope or something there. boarding school. Boarding school, yeah. yeah. Or go to Geneva where one of his uh, uh, um, servants worked. Um, Or something. Reykjavik, I can see. That's got got nice memories for me. uh, (laughs) Um, All right, so so I watched... uh, John Bolton. I was on Face the Nation on Sunday, and he he did Face the Nation, and he did Fox News Sunday, and John Bolton's a former colleague of ours. We know John well. Um, I think, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I think we could both agree that John is not of this type to assume the best of motives or intentions of the North Koreans. Uh, and for listeners, uh, Nick was nodding. Um, and so... Uh, he said quite pointedly more than once in each interview that the model they're looking at is the Libya Gaddafi model, right? And I have this sneaking suspicion that he is doing that in part to poison <laughs> the negotiations because the Gaddafi model is one that justifies keeping your nukes at all costs, right? We, we, we talk Gaddafi out of his weapons of mass destruction program and then when the the Huns were at the door calling for his head. We basically gave him the machetes to take him off his head. And the lesson that if I were a dictator, I would take from Iraq, what I would take from from Libya is precisely the one that says under no circumstances should we trust the running dog capitalists to honor their commitment not to help depose us when push comes to shove, right? So, uh, so why Libya? So why would he keep saying that? <laughs> well... I've known John for almost 35 years, and I think he's brilliant, and he's been a great colleague here. He's also an extremely good lawyer who has won cases in front of the Supreme Court and who has built coalitions of countries, improbable countries for, like, Desert Storm. Uh, my guess would be 
he is going to be the president's lawyer in whatever policy moves forward uh, in America's national security interest. Now, why Libya indeed? I guess I would say stay tuned. Um, we've seen we've seen his client. We've seen the president of the United States uh, all over the place in different things that he says. Mm-hmm. And maybe the president's national security advisor also uh, will make different arguments about how to deal with the North Korean threat. But if you're coming to meetings with the North Korean leadership and you're saying, you know, we think that Gaddafi looked really great dead on the street there. <laughs> um, that may have a certain amount of negotiating moxie in and of itself. Who knows? Fair enough. Um, Nick, I know you got to get out of here. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Reading. It's yeah. always a pleasure. And congratulations on the book. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so Nick Everstadt has left the room, and uh, I hope you guys found it interesting. I actually wanted to get to a whole bunch of other stuff because Nick really knows a vast amount about a vast amount. He's he is sort of he's got this sort of nutty professor vibe, but he's actually such a mensch, and he knows an amazing amount of things. And maybe we'll have him back to talk about demography and you know the state of the economy and and all of that and that guy he killed. Um, but anyway, I want to thank Nick for having it. Now we're just going to do a quick various and sundry thing. Jack, what'd you think of all that? Uh, well, we were actually, we were having a little conversation before you came in here and he, in the, in the course of our conversation, he was describing the North Korean regime's strategy for survival, which involved a a good deal of misdirection. Mm -hmm. And he called them the magicians of, of Pyongyang, which I thought, I'm just mentioning that so that I can make it the, or suggest it as the title of this podcast. Oh, I thought you were going to fight for hot dog eating surrender monkeys, but uh, <laughs> um, I thought they were cheese eating surrender monkeys. Well, that's the point: is that we the Simpsons called that of the French, but the North Koreans were saying that we surrendered to them. Oh, yeah, oh I yeah. get it. Okay, okay. So, all right, kids. All right. So, uh, what else do we have to talk about here, real quick? Uh, well, you are now on the other side. At, well, you're through the gauntlet of the first week of your book. That's right. A pub date was a week ago today. We're recording this on Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, right? Uh, n- <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and it's been a rough week. And uh, Too much time traveling. So it's been exactly one week. Sales look good. Thank you to everybody who's bought. Um, to everybody who hasn't bought the book, I really I don't understand why you hate me. Those of you who haven't bought the book but are Catholic... You should feel guilty. Um, I hope I, I hope that will work on you. Yeah, you only um you only feel comfortable doing it about the Catholics, the Jews. You should feel even more guilty. We should actually do an episode on just simply on guilt in different yeah, religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, way back, uh, Charles Murray offhandedly used the phrase "guilt Olympics," uh-huh. which is just like uh, that. Just hearing that concept made me laugh and then think very deeply about the subject. Yeah, because because Catholic guilt is theological. For the mm-hmm. most part, right? Although the Irish variant of it is both ethnic and 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 theological, but Jewish is more ancestral guilt. Um, it's a di- slightly different kind or tribal guilt. Um, 
although there's a theological component to it. Anyway, we should put more thought into this and do an episode on guilt. But the real main takeaway is that you probably should buy the book. It looks like, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that it will be um, – it will land somewhere on the New York Times bestseller list. We don't know for sure. It should going by the numbers, but these things are always done on a curve and there's a lot of um, – there are a lot of unknown unknowns and all of that. But it did go as high as six on Amazon, which is pretty awesome, particularly in such a crowded book market. And uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster week. I should give some thank yous to some people. I really want to thank – the guys at Morning Joe, I could not believe that they gave me a good 16 minutes or something like that to actually talk strictly on the book, which was kind of awesome. And I got, uh, let's shall we say, uh, very friendly and favorable and respectful treatment from The Daily Show, which has not always been my experience in the past. <laughs> um, and uh, and it's a little weird, you know, because like I've been a Fox News contributor for, I don't know, almost 10 years now, something like that. And... Um, and I understand Fox has this policy about not really letting contributors and people with the network, uh, uh, exploit their ties in the network to hawk books. I, I get that, but you know, I got, I did a three minute hit on Martha McCallum for the first release of the show and I'm grateful for her having me on. A lot of other shows haven't had me on. And I had to tie the thesis of a book that starts 300,000 years ago and gets into the differences between Locke and Rousseau and the nature of civilizations. And I had to tie it to Kanye West's tweets, um, which was a bit of a challenge, especially for a first interview. But um, I got to say, you've never been to – I think I talked to you about this, about the Bloomberg offices. No, but you you said – I think you said something about they're a very weird place, right? Yeah. So um, Bloomberg in New York, uh, their headquarters – and thank you to Bloomberg for having me on. But it was – and I, I guess I'm blowing any chance I have of being a Bloomberg contributor anytime soon. <laughs> but uh, what a strange, strange place. Um, uh, first of all, they have – so you get there and you got to do all this weird security stuff, which lots of buildings in New York now have. And, but then you go up in the elevator and there's an unbelievably huge, like open space, like Google headquarters kind of lobby receiving area. And you go up there and it's just crammed with people walking around. It's like taking the hallway scenes from West Wing and multiplying them by a hundred. Just everyone's chattering and moving and they all look like they got something important to do and everyone's moving around. And there are a lot of people waiting for important meetings. And, and, and meanwhile, the, the greeter who greets you, who eventually shows up, the first thing he tells you is you got to get a lot of snacks and you look around and they've got all of these. It's like they took everything you could get at a convenience store or a somewhat healthy convenience store because it is Bloomberg. Um, but like smart food, popcorn and granola and yogurt and all these soda fountains and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's all for free, which is nice. I guess it's for free. You know, we get, we have a nice kitchen here at AEI. It's nothing like this thing. And, but they talk about the snacks like everybody's high. Um, it's, oh, you got to get the snacks. You know, take as many snacks as you want, you know. And and then they take you or they took me and the publicist that was with me down uh, this. I, I, I fecal matter you not a basically a spiral escalator, which in and of itself is kind of stony, right? <laughs> not, it's not fully spiral. It's more like a. A sharp crescent moon escalator. It sort of arches down. And I've never been on a 
curved escalator before. And there's a reason for that. There are apparently only like two or three in the world. <laughs> and I gather like the other ones are in like Abu Dhabi or something like that because, you know, some sultan's uh, pet tiger doesn't like straight escalators or something. And you uh, and they take you down it and then you go and some and they get taken to this green room and for those of you who don't know usually at TV studio green rooms it's a pretty regimented thing they take you in they say okay we're going to take you in for hair and makeup right now and then you come back here and wait and then you get brought out instead this green room has the the sliding doors are just open on the studio where you can see the people talking like 10 12 20 feet in front of you and i guess what they want is the ambient sound from the green room where everyone's just again milling around talking to each other you know uh, like like in the first class lounge in an airport or something and and i'm like are they doing makeup are they doing hair and not that i care very much about this but i just assumed they were and the hit time was coming up and so finally my publicist goes up to some guy who looks like he works there and is like uh so do you guys do hair and makeup? And the guy's, guy's like, yeah, yeah, we, we got that. Yeah. And again, it's like, they're all stoned. It's so <laughs> weird. And it's like, if you want, you can do that. You know, you go around the corner over there and down the hall and to the left and tell them you want, you know, the, the hair and makeup stuff, you know, but whatever. And she was like, well, do you want to go do it? I don't know. I don't care really, but no, I guess not. Cause I hate putting makeup on. It's horrible. Um, yeah. Outside of the weekends, it's really rough, but it's, <laughs> um, but it's really weird that um, this place, which probably spent $10 million on an escalator and, you know, $5 million on these studios and all of this weird, tech- amazing technology in the place. And yet, and they take very seriously this idea of having a television network, but they actually don't take seriously making television. And <laughs> it was, so anyway, <clears throat> I do my hit, which was kind of strange and, um, the the people who worked there kind of were i mean the anchors were very nice but i was saying to them this is a very strange place and they're like yeah no you know and so uh i leave and we go back out up this spiral escalator oh yeah then i do a radio hit where again kind of stony and weird um and then we go back up and the person as they're leading me out says i just want to tell you one thing you can take as many snacks as you want. <laughs> and I'm like, Th- thanks. And um, and so then it was weird. We go to BBC way downtown, and the person who greeted us there, nice lady, nothing weird to report about it. It's just like a little insert studio thing that they rent from uh, the AP, I guess. But she was like, how's your day going so far? And I was like, oh, we were just at the Bloomberg Studios. And the first thing she says is, did you get snacks? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, was, I just, I couldn't figure out. It was like the snack, the free snack thing was so much more important to people than I could get my mind around. And the only people I know who like really freak out about getting more than their fair share of free like popcorn and potato chips are people who are really high. And <laughs> it, was just, it was just a very kind of strange well, thing. Well, I'm also a sucker for free food, um, but for different reasons. Trust me. That's because I basically pay you in chickens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, there's one thing, you know, I, I, I think that the, uh, the, the guy who said goodbye to you at Bloomberg, you forgot one thing that he said, um, which was, as he was leaving, he took you with, on, his, on your shoulder, put his hands around you, and just said, have you ever looked at your hands? <laughs> I, I think that you forgot to mention that, and that's an that egregious oversight. Uh, it, well, that's funny you mentioned that because he did actually say, "What if um, what if 
like our solar system is just like a bunch of molecules in my thumbnail. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, that was, it wasn't the most exciting or greatest experience of the of the book tour, but it was kind of weirdly one of the more memorable ones. Other than that, I want to say thank you to everybody on Twitter who's tweeting out pictures of the book. If you tweet out pictures of you reading the book, you're very likely to get a uh, retweet from either our, our artificial intelligence account uh, at, at Jonah Remnant or from me. Especially if there's a dog also in the picture. Yeah, dog bonus is a dog. We're, um, we're approaching brand synergy with, with pictures like that. That's right. And um, other than that, what else is going on? Still no review from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, so that remains to be seen. But we got very nice reviews from the Weekly Standard, although Adam Kuyper called the book baggy. Yeah, I don't – I don't. how can a hardback be baggy? I, I, I gather what he meant was that from context that it wasn't, it wasn't like a slim fit bespoke suit, but rather it was more like a baggy suit, you know, because it does. And in fairness, it does have a lot of tangents and digressions in the book, but I, <laughs> I like the tangents and digressions because I think they add context. Oh, well, he, he, we, he should have read the first draft. <laughs> yeah, no, I should, I should, actually, I should send it in a burning bag of dog crap to his front door. A baggy door. bag. Yeah. But no, um, actually it was a very, it was a very generous and nice review as was Yuval Levin's review where, and for those of you who might remember back to the first or, or the second or third episode of this podcast where we had him on, I have um, sort of unbridled respect for Yuval. He's, I basically see him as the Irving Crystal of our generation. And he said that um, something to the effect of no book so far written this century deserves the title of conservative classic more, which is kind of nice. And if you go to jonagoldberg.com, you will find – um, a sort of clearinghouse of the reviews of the uh, media appearances. You can watch the full Morning Joe and Daily Show appearances through there, and of course, you can find a retailer where you can purchase the book yourself. Which um, I would be very grateful if you did. And if you th- if you feel like I'm unfairly guilting you about this, I don't think that's right. I'm just fairly guilting you about this. Yeah. Especially all you Catholics. I know that you feel guilty if you haven't bought the book yet. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm just speaking from experience as a Catholic. I just know that guilt is gnawing at you. Let uh, it gnaw. Um, and uh, uh, we have a couple of great podcasts lined up. I'm trying to get a bunch in the can before I get on the road because we don't know what the technological possibilities are going to be. But we've got a rank punditry episode that we're going to try and do tomorrow and with a secret guest star because we're not sure who it is and um we're not sure who we are either we spend too much time at bloomberg (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and then uh um and i'm very excited that we are going to have russ roberts come in here where i get to turn the tables on him and ask him all sorts of questions and as an avid econ talk listener for the last six or seven years um i have uh, a long list of things i want to get at i'm not sure i can get at all of them but i'm really looking forward to that and um, I know that there are lots of questions out there about how what's the upper boundary of books that you can buy. And the short answer is, is there is no upper boundary. Um, some people want to know about what's going on with Dingo and her my, my dog, uh, Zoe, and her boyfriend, Ben. Maybe I'll fill you guys in at the end of the, the Rank Punditry podcast and all of that. It's a touchy subject. But thanks again for listening and thanks again for the support. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>